Advocate, Stephen Story. I'm your host, Jennifer Barlow. This is episode seven, The Confessor. In the last episode, I covered a lot. I covered a few potential suspects and the lack of investigation against them, the details surrounding the man who threatened to rape and kill Kristen in the easy manner he was disregarded by the police, and suspicious phone calls that were never tracked down. In this episode, I'm going to cover all of the details surrounding the man who confessed to involvement in the crime, more than once in fact, and how that led to the discovery of a hidden tape and proof that the former lead detective lied on the stand. There is a lot to unpack with this man. His name is Anton Shalinsky. On March 31st of 2000, Anton Shalinsky, a former resident of Long Island, walked into the Douglasville Police Station in Georgia to confess to involvement in the murder of Kristen Scarabelli. However, much like James Marr, he was never considered a suspect by the Suffolk County Police. Despite the knowledge of this confession, the Suffolk County Homicide Squad still had their sights set firmly on Stephen. On October 28, 2003, information discovered demonstrated that members of the Suffolk County Homicide Squad withheld evidence regarding this confession for three years before turning it over to the prosecution and the defense. Two different yet significant recordings took place during this confession from Anton. First, the interviewing detective in Georgia videotaped his initial interview with Anton, which the Suffolk County Police had in record. Second, the interviewing detective in Georgia taped the phone call between the Suffolk County detectives and Anton, which the detectives were unaware was being recorded at the time. The Suffolk County detectives had the video with Anton confessing to the Georgia police in their possession in April of 2000, but they did not give it over to the prosecutor until several days into Stevens' trial in October of 2003, three years after it was received. Now, you can imagine this was a huge surprise for the defense, for Stevens' lawyer. It meant the possibility of a mistrial or a dismissal of the indictment for withholding evidence, but it also presented the possibility that the real perpetrator would be caught and Stephen would be free. But even with continual demands for justice, neither of these happened. The detectives were not held responsible for any of their unethical, neglectful, and perjurious acts. On October 29, 2003, during trial proceedings, the prosecutor told the judge that the following afternoon he was speaking with Detective Mercer about a forensic exemplar from someone by the name of Anton Shalinsky. And somehow in that conversation, Detective Mercer brought up this videotape of this conversation between the Georgia police and the Suffolk detectives. Now, the prosecutor continued to tell the judge he had seen the forensic exemplar in the crime lab before, but he had never heard of or seen or been aware of the tape's existence. So he said that what he did immediately was request that copies of the tape be made and that he had given a copy to Stephen's lawyer the morning of this conversation, so right before this conversation, and that nobody else had had a chance to review it. He continued to state that he had no prior knowledge of the existence of this particular tape and that it was his understanding that the tape was received by the police department in conjunction with the exemplar that they had received in 2000. The prosecutor tells the judge, I profusely apologize for the inconvenience. I was totally unaware of its existence until yesterday, and I don't know that there's any more that needs to be said at this point in time. But clearly, there was a lot more that needed to be said regarding the matter. The judge asked why Anton Shalinsky was even relevant, and the prosecutor proceeded to tell him that Anton had walked into a police station and told the police he was someone who should be looked at in this investigation. Now, at this point, the judge stops and he asks Stephen's lawyer, didn't you already ask one of the detectives about someone else confessing during a testimony? And Stephen's lawyer responds, I asked Detective Legeza whether anybody had confessed to this murder, and he thought it was a trick question and wanted to know whether it was a confession to a police officer or to an inmate at the jail. 
Stephen's lawyer continues, but I wasn't specifically referring to Anton because I didn't know that he confessed or implicated himself in regard to the murder. He didn't know until that morning when Mr. Collins told him about the videotape. He said that he was actually referring to somebody else during that line of questioning. Stephen's lawyer continues to state to the judge, he says, Your Honor, I accept the representation of Mr. Collins as an officer of the court, but the fact is that all this information was well known to Detectives Legaza, Mercer, and Sergeant Doyle and the Homicide Squad for years. And the prosecutor cuts in and responds that he needs to point out one thing, that they have to take Detective Legaza out of the equation because the day that the video conversation happened, the day that Anton Shalinsky walks into the police department was Detective Legaza's last day in the Suffolk County Police Department. But he says, as regards to Doyle and Mercer, I'm not making that caveat. At this point, Stevens' lawyer presents to the judge his argument that this was clearly Brady material as both the lead investigator and the supervisor of the homicide squad both had this information and withheld it, which he argued severely prejudiced his ability to defend Stephen. He went on to elaborate on all the questioning and investigating that he would have done with Anton had he been privy to the information. Stephen's lawyer stated, and to the extent that there was Brady material in this case for years that I submit was deliberately withheld by the homicide squad, this is outrageous. It is prejudicial to the defense. It is something that is just unconscionable. And then he goes on to say, I respectfully submit that the interest of justice would best be served by dismissing the indictment in this case. The judge responded by agreeing that without looking at and reviewing the tape, it did seem to constitute Brady material. Now, Brady material is any evidence known to the prosecution that is favorable to the defendant's case. Suppressing that evidence that favors the defendant violates due process. At this point, the prosecutor says that he is physically sick over the situation and reiterated that he had no idea of the tape's existence. The prosecutor went on to argue that it may not be Brady material since the DNA exemplar eliminated Anton, considering his DNA was not found on any items collected, and that information was in the paperwork. However, we already know that there's no way to say he is eliminated simply because of the button. We've covered, and the detectives have already agreed in testimony, that without proof that the button was connected to the crime, nobody could be ruled out by that comparison. Also, not all of the unidentified hairs were tested against Anton's. Stephen's lawyer was furious and he stated, this is outrageous, this is misconduct. This is a deliberate attempt by the police to prevent the truth from being told in this case, your honor, and that's why I'm moving for a dismissal of the indictment. Even still, the judge concluded that application is denied and then he expounded upon his ruling. He said that he believed the moment that this would be a lot more crucial would be if Detective Mercer and Doyle and all of the detectives had already testified and and this information wasn't revealed to anybody at that point. Then he said he would give real serious thought to the application. But he continues to tell Stephen's lawyer, but here you have an opportunity to cross-examine them and make those exact points that you're making to me now. Why did you not turn this over, etc.? So the application to dismiss the indictment is denied. Stephen's lawyer, clearly unpleased with the ruling, stated, Judge, I want to say in the alternative, I'd ask for a mistrial. Once again, he received an unreasonable response. Yes, denied. Thank you. The judge did have the ability to dismiss the indictment, and I'm not a lawyer, but it does seem strange to me that instead of taking matters into his own hands, he told Stephen's lawyer that he would just cross-examine the detectives and ask them why they hid the tape. It felt like he didn't want to do any of the work, so he was leaving it up to Stephen's lawyer to take care of. 
I think this was a poor judgment call. The judge did not seem to be taking this seriously, and I think it did prejudice Stevens' chances because the detectives were not held responsible. They were not reprimanded by the judge, so the jurors didn't get to see how serious this really was. They only got to see the cross-examination in which the detectives could only be asked why they withheld the tape. But then they got to sit there and point fingers at each other and say they thought somebody else took care of it, etc., which lightens the seriousness and gives them an easy out for outrageous actions that border on a violation of due process. It doesn't have the same impact. If the judge had taken matters into his own hands, that shows everybody how serious this is. But simply saying, instead, let's just cross-examine the detectives and ask them why they did this, it opens up the possibility for them to lighten the situation. Oh, it was a mistake. Oh, I didn't realize. Oh, I didn't know. And the jury gets to hear that part. They don't get to hear all of these conversations that are happening on the record, but in judges' chambers outside of their scope of knowledge. If they had all of that information, if they had seen this whole process as it was discovered and uncovered, and they're seeing perhaps Stephen's lawyer being so upset about it and continually asking for a dismissal of the indictment or a mistrial, they may have started to see a different picture here, but that isn't what the jurors got. At this point, Stephen's lawyer argues that he had no information as to Anton's whereabouts and that he would like to have the opportunity to investigate him, to locate him. And the judge agreed that this was important and requested that the prosecutor work with the police to make sure that Anton was located. On October 30th, more proceedings took place to establish that the prosecutor's investigator believed they had tracked down Anton's whereabouts. At this point in time, they were only aware of the videotape of the conversation between the Georgia police and Anton. But after watching that tape, questions emerged as to whether or not any recording of the phone conversation between Anton and the Suffolk County Homicide Squad existed. The judge's direction was to continue the search for Anton and determine if an audio recording of their phone call was obtainable. So in this conversation, they're saying that they watched the video between Anton and the Georgia police, and that video is still recording when the Georgia police place Anton on a phone call to the Suffolk detectives working the case. And the judge wanted to know if they could get a hold of that conversation, the one between Anton and the Suffolk County detectives, which was had over the telephone, which is a separate video or recording than the one that we have of Anton actually speaking directly to the Georgia police. So this is the second of the two important recordings that we're dealing with with Anton Schiller. On the morning of October 31st, before continuing forensic testimonies, another conversation was held on the record in the judge's chambers regarding Anton. The prosecutor told the judge that the previously referenced phone call was in fact recorded by the Georgia police and they still possessed the tape, which they were in the process of getting. Additionally, the investigator was able to locate some of Anton's acquaintances, and two of them gave sworn statements that Anton had also confided in them similar information but closer in time to Kristen's death rather than in 2000. The prosecutor stated that at least one of the statements put Anton on Cedar Road at or about Mother's Day or immediately thereafter while intoxicated and on drugs. After expressing his concern for the Suffolk detective's lack of follow-up in regards to their conversation with Anton, Stevens' lawyer asked again for a dismissal of the indictment. The fact that the detectives never spoke with Anton again after that 14-minute phone call, never reached out to his family or anyone else who may have had information about him, and then withheld the information, were aspects that Stevens' lawyer argued prohibited his ability to defend Stephen, once again saying that this was a trial by ambush. 
How could the police get a confession from someone, have others say that he also confessed to them, have people putting him on the corner where the body was found, either on the day of the crime or the day before, and he's not even looked into by the detectives? The detectives toss his confession away. They do nothing. They do not investigate. They do not talk to Anton's friends or family. They do nothing but hide the information. However, the judge's ruling was still that detectives Mercer and Doyle had not yet testified, which gave Stephen's lawyer plenty of ammunition for his cross-examination. The judge stated that if detectives Mercer and Doyle had testified and now this information came out, then that would have been unspeakable. Detective Legaza was taken out of that question because the confession day was apparently his last day of work. However, later evidence proved that that was not an accurate assessment. The judge had bigger issue with the events of that morning, October 31st, and that issue was that the video confession between the Georgia police and Anton had been reported in the newspaper and leaked to the media. People accessing the Newsday website at the time had the ability to listen to that video before it had even been mentioned in the trial. The judge was aghast at the situation and worried about the jurors also seeing that information. Some important points were brought up by the judge who at this point seemed to be on Stephen's side, though that would not remain the case. The judge says to both attorneys, it's interesting when you have certain instances when that issue came up yesterday about the audio tape. I said to myself, those police officers down in Georgia videotaped a guy who walks in off the street. I found it kind of puzzling why they wouldn't audio tape a conversation between that person and the Suffolk police, which is a totally different attitude than we have here in Suffolk County where they don't videotape anything. And of course, that's always grist for the mill, because I think it makes a lot of sense to argue in front of the jury, well, isn't that the best way to preserve something? Apparently, those people down in Georgia, though, they certainly don't have the volume of cases we have here, but it seems to me that they're pretty professional. And then he goes on to say, I don't say this lightly, but Mr. Soshnik, I think you have been presented with a great opportunity to challenge the credibility of these officers and everything else on cross-examination. If you didn't, then I'd be faced with a very serious problem. So again, the judge knows this is wrong, and he's making Stephen's lawyer do all the work instead of taking serious action at the time when he had a chance. And he's actually foreshadowing one of the biggest issues that would develop in this case. Nothing from Stephen's six hours in interrogation was recorded. He is calling out the Suffolk detectives, but he isn't actually holding them accountable. The judge goes on to express that the Suffolk detectives should have been embarrassed and that their reputations were at stake. On the morning of November 3rd, 2003, additional proceedings took place before the trial resumed, wherein Stephen's lawyer requested again the dismissal of the indictment. The request was denied. The judge clearly possessed an understanding that the detectives had made a significant mistake, a mistake that shed light on misconduct and poor detective work, but he continued to deny all requests for a mistrial or dismissal of the indictment against Stephen. Anton was eventually located by Investigator Flood, who worked for the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office. His responsibility was to assist attorneys in case preparation and tracking down witnesses. After being given the assignment, Mr. Flood began completing computer searches and background checks for Anton. He testified that he found various addresses throughout the United States and several arrests. He found a phone number and called Anton's mother, which is how he discovered that Anton was in Missoula, Montana. A police officer located Anton and put him in contact with Mr. Flood. Investigator Flood testified that he spoke to Anton over the phone and he agreed to go back to New York voluntarily. Mr. Flood, along with a fellow investigator, flew to Montana to meet Anton and, es and escort him back to New York. Along the way, they fed him, bought him new clothes, paid for his travel arrangements and a hotel stay at the expense of the district attorney's office. 
Once they arrived in New York, Anton met with the prosecutor twice for pre-testimony discussions, and during one of those meetings, he was shown the videotape from his conversation with Sergeant Adams in 2000. At no time did Anton ever ask for an attorney. Investigator Flood went on to testify that he was able to complete a more thorough search into Anton's criminal history and discovered that he had multiple open warrants in different states. According to the information Investigator Flood was able to find, Anton had been arrested in Colorado in 1997, Nashville in 2000, Colorado again in 2000, Georgia in 2001, Arizona three times in 2001, Florida in 2002, Montana in 2002, and Iowa in 2002. Investigator Flood reached out to these jurisdictions, but none of them wanted Anton held for extradition. During Investigator Flood's investigation, he was contacted by Eugene Schatz and Justin Smith, both former acquaintances of Anton. They also put Mr. Flood in contact with Christine Tornice, another former acquaintance. The three of them gave statements indicating that Anton had reported similar information to them regarding his involvement in Kristen's murder but closer in time to the incident, so before 2000 when he spoke to the Georgia police. This means that Anton had confessed in some form or another more than once. In November of 2003, Sergeant Thomas Adams flew from Georgia to New York to testify in court. Sergeant Adams was coming from the Douglasville Police Department where Anton went to report his involvement in the crime. During the direct examination with the prosecutor, Sergeant Adams testified that he had no knowledge of the investigation into the death of Kristen prior to Anton's appearance at the police station. Sergeant Adams stated that Anton arrived at the police department and asked to speak with someone concerning a murder that happened in New York. Sergeant Adams was selected to meet with Anton, and once that meeting began, he decided to videotape the conversation. He taped the entirety of their conversation that took place in the interview room. Sergeant Adams testified that he obtained information from Anton to indicate where the crime occurred, and after reaching out to authorities, Sergeant Adams was put into contact with Sergeant Doyle of Suffolk County, team lead in the investigation. Once in contact with the correct investigators, Sergeant Adams testified that he put Anton on the phone with the Suffolk County detectives. Sergeant Adams testified that this phone call lasted only approximately 15 minutes. After the telephone call, the Suffolk County authorities requested that Sergeant Adams try to get a blood sample, hair sample, or DNA sample kit from Anton, which he was able to complete through Anton's consent. Sergeant Adams testified that he followed Anton, who was escorted by another police officer, to the hospital where those samples were taken. The samples were taken in his presence, wherein he packaged them, sealed them, and prepared the kit for processing. And then he sent that package with the conversation and the samples to Suffolk County. Detective Mercer confirmed that the package with the items arrived on April 11, 2000. Sergeant Adams testified that after the procedure was completed, Anton was taken back to the police department by a uniformed patrol and he was released to his car. During this time, Anton was never in custody, as Sergeant Adams was not compelled to advise him of his constitutional rights against self-incrimination. After this encounter with Anton and the Suffolk County detectives in 2000, Sergeant Adams had no contact with any of them until one week prior to giving that testimony in 2003. At this time, directly after Sergeant Adams' testimony, the videotape interview between him and Anton was played for the jury. During his cross-examination by Stevens' lawyer, Sergeant Adams testified to the conversation he had with Anton and some of the information presented during the course of their conversation. Sergeant Adams stated that Anton had mutual friends with Kristen, that he lived a half a mile away from Kristen in May of 1996, and he didn't know who was with him during the time he was in Suffolk County in May. 
Stephen's lawyer asked Sergeant Adams, did he strike you as somebody who came to get something off of his chest? To which the sergeant responded, I believe he did. Yes, sir. Sergeant Adams testified that Anton confided in him that if he were a police officer investigating this case, he would view himself as the prime suspect. And not only that, but Anton also said he thought he did this murder. Sergeant Adams continued to testify during his cross-examination that to his personal knowledge, no one from the Suffolk County Police Department ever went down to Georgia to speak with Anton. Nobody from Suffolk County Police Department ever went to Douglasville to speak with Sergeant Adams himself regarding the interview. At the time of the interview, Anton's parents were also living in Georgia, and to Sergeant Adams' knowledge, no one from the Suffolk County Police Department ever went to Douglasville to speak to his parents. On November 5th, 2003, the audio tape with the phone call between Anton and the Suffolk County detectives was given to the prosecutor by Sergeant Adams. The tape was to be given to members of the New York State Police who believed they had the appropriate equipment to retrieve the audio conversation. At this time, the prosecutor reported that Anton was in New York and ready to testify. Stevens' lawyer had serious problems with the notion that he would have to cross-examine Anton before having a chance to listen to that phone conversation or a chance to speak with him in person. The judge agreed that both of these steps were important and decided that he would send the jury home if the information was not presented before cross-examination. Surprisingly, the dictaphone recording was successfully extracted and it contained condemning information. Detective Legaza, despite all previous conversations that he was unaware of any confession and was not present for Anton's phone call, is in fact heard on the recording. And he wasn't simply listening in on the conversation. He was actively participating in asking Anton questions regarding whether or not he went to Kristen's wake, whether he signed the book, and what he did with the body, did he dump it and run. Detective Legaza's prior testimony was beginning to look like perjury. The following exchange is between Detective Legaza and Michael Soshnik, Stevens' lawyer. It emphasizes the detective's unwillingness to answer the questions being asked. Stevens' lawyer asks Detective Legaza, Do you know if in this case somebody, not my client, not Stephen Manolis, confessed to doing this murder? The detective responds, do I know if somebody confessed in this case to doing this murder? I know there were people that said they had information, they have a body or something like that, but I believe that was after I retired, so I'm not sure about it or heard something about it. Stephen's lawyer asks, Detective Legaza, I asked you a specific question and I'll ask it again. Please listen. And Detective Legaza responds, and I tried to answer it. Stephen's lawyer says, please listen to the question. In this case, did somebody other than my client confess to killing Kristen Scarabelli? You heard that? No, you never heard that. The detective responds, could you clarify the question? Stevens' lawyer says, Detective Legaza, you're a police officer for 33 years. You know what a confession is. I'm asking you, in this case, did someone other than my client confess to the murder of Kristen Scarabelli? To which the detective responds, confess to a police officer? Confess to who, sir? Stevens' lawyer says, Detective Legaza, I'm asking you, and the detective cuts in, I can't answer that question. Stephen's lawyer says, you can't answer? It's too difficult to answer? And the detective says, yes, the way you're giving it to me, yes, sir. So Stephen's lawyer says, it's tricky, yes? And the detective responds, well, you've been known to use that sort of thing. Stephen's lawyer says, the defense lawyer is trying to mix you up. Is that what you're saying? And the detective responds, well, it happens. So Stephen's lawyer says, Detective Legaza, do you know whether or not somebody in this case, other than my client, confessed that he murdered Kristen Scarabelli to a police officer? Detective Legaza states, not to my knowledge, nobody confessed to a police officer. 
The detective continued to state that someone may have confessed to someone who was not a police officer, but that would have been after he retired, so he didn't have any information as to who that person was. But he clearly stated that nobody had ever confessed to a police officer. At the time he made that statement, at the time of that testimony, the judge and both of the attorneys were unaware of Anton. During the proceedings in which this testimony is brought up again in regards to the audio tape, Stephen's lawyer states, Detective Legaza's answer in the most favorable light to him was evasive, and in the most unfavorable light was perjurious. Stephen's lawyer goes on to tell the judge that he believed too much had happened in this case to give Stephen a fair trial, and he says, Based upon the prosecutorial and police misconduct, a dismissal of the indictment in the interest of justice is compelled. And finally, Your Honor, as a footnote to this application, I now know why the Suffolk County Homicide Squad does not tape record interrogations. The reason is they are afraid that the confessions they record may be their own. And that statement would become one of the biggest arguments for the defense. The judge had previously stated that if the detectives had already testified and then this information was released, he would consider it unspeakable, and that if all the detectives had already testified, he would give real serious thought to the application for a dismissal of the indictment. Is it less unspeakable of an action if only one detective perjures themselves? Even though he understood the seriousness of this action, the judge denied Stephen's lawyer's application for a dismissal, and he simply stated that Detective Legaza must come back and be re-cross-examined before the end of the trial. But guess what? Detective Legaza was never called back to the trial, and he was never present at the second trial at all. The judge's decision in that moment to again deny the request for a mistrial, even in the midst of serious misconduct by the detectives and potential perjury, had a significant impact on Stephen's fate. He allowed the trial to continue, which only further emphasized the lack of investigative prowess and effort by the Suffolk County detectives, especially in regard to Anton. Anton Shalinsky, after being cleaned up by the investigators from the district attorney's office, took the stand on November 5, 2003. The prosecutor started his direct examination by gathering background information from Anton. He said that he moved from East Northport in 1995. He did not graduate high school. He returned to East Northport after enlisting in the Marine Corps in the spring of 1996. Anton left for the Corps in the summer of 1996, but he was discharged after approximately 60 days. Anton testified that although he was familiar with Cedar Road, he was not aware of Kristen or where she lived. He stated that he started doing drugs in high school and that he started with marijuana and alcohol, eventually getting into acid and harder drugs. He admitted that those drugs affected his ability to be able to recall things. He remembered that he was on Long Island on Mother's Day in 1996, but he did not have specific recollections as to where he was exactly on that day because he was drinking heavily and smoking marijuana. In later questioning, he stated that he remembered going to the Douglasville police station with a particular topic in mind. But when the prosecutor asked him what that topic was, he responded, Sir, I was extremely confused and down and out and depressed, and I was almost suicidal, sir. He did not actually answer the question, but went on to testify that he remembered speaking to the police and telling them that he should call the police in New York because he might be in trouble. He did not remember exactly what he said. Anton testified that he stopped doing hard drugs in 2000, which is around the time he was trying heroin. He stated that he stopped doing acid in 1999 because it caused him to lose his mind, think strange thoughts, and see things that were not there. He decided that he wanted full comprehension of what was going on around him. However, he did not stop drinking. 
At the time of his testimony, he was still drinking excessively and considered himself an alcoholic. When the prosecutor asked him, as you sit here today, Mr. Shalinsky, do you think you killed Kristen Scarabelli? He responded, no, sir. During the cross-examination, Anton testified that he was staying with different friends while visiting his hometown on Long Island, but that at points in May, he was staying with friends on Markwood Lane. When asked specifically where he was staying on the night of May 12th, Anton responded, I don't remember, sir, which would become the most common response during his cross-examination. Anton testified that he had been staying with both Eugene Schatz and Justin Smith in May of 1996, and they both lived on Markwood Lane, which runs west of Cedar Road. He testified that he was familiar with the roads in that area as he had walked them numerous times. Anton reported to the Georgia police that he was intoxicated and undergoing a blackout on the day of the murder. When he was asked about this at trial, he responded that he did not remember saying that. Stephen's lawyer asked him if he watched the video of his confession prior to his testimony and whether or not that refreshed his recollection, to which he responded, some, yes sir. However, he was not able to or not willing to answer most of the follow-up questions from the defense. When he was asked if he went to that police station because something was bothering him, he responded, I was nearly suicidal, sir. When asked if he was trying to unburden himself by speaking to the police, he responded, yes, sir. Anton testified that his recollection of what he did on the night of May 12th was still foggy at the time of trial and even after watching his videotaped conversation with the police, but he knew that he had left the East Northport area after the murder was committed. Once he left the area, Anton testified that he went to stay with a friend, Christine, in Syosset for a few days before heading to Paris Island for military deployment. This departure from East Northport took place in May of 1996, though Anton did not remember the exact dates of any of these events. Anton was asked by the defense whether or not he had ever discussed his involvement in the murder of Kristen with anybody else, to which he responded, I had discussed having people turn me in for reward money. Stephen's lawyer asked him if he had specifically reported his involvement to his friends, Justin Smith, Eugene Schatz, and Christine Tornese, as far back as 1996 and 1997. Each time he was asked about this, Anton answered, I don't remember, sir. Christine Tornese did take the stand to testify, and she said that she was not aware of where Anton was on the night of May 12, 1996, the night of the murder, but that he was with her the following evening, May 13th, when he needed a place to crash for the night. She said that she picked him up in Suffolk County and drove him back to her home. She had no knowledge of where he was or who he was with the following evening, May 12th. Although Eugene Schatz and Justin Smith did not testify in this trial, they gave sworn statements to the DA's investigator that Anton had made similar comments to them as those he made to Sergeant Adams, but in 1996 or 1997, earlier than Christine in 2000. So he essentially confessed three times. He spoke to Justin and Eugene in 1996 or 1997. He spoke to Christine in 2000, and then the Georgia police and the Suffolk County police also in 2000. A signed statement provided by Justin Schatz was given to the DA's investigator and read for the jury. This is what his statement said. On Thursday, October 30th, 2003, I got a call from a friend of mine who told me there was an article in Newsday mentioning a mutual friend of ours, Anton Shalinsky. It was about the murder of the Scarabelli girl and how he walked into a Georgia police station and confessed to the murder. I read the article and became very upset about it. I called another friend of mine, Eugene Schatz, and told him about the article because we were friends of Anton from high school. After speaking with Eugene a couple of times, Eugene told me he was going to speak with the police and asked me if I wanted to come along. 
Before coming, Eugene and I talked what we knew to refresh my memory of the events of the time. At the time of the murder, I was a student at Suffolk County Community College. My girlfriend at the time was a student at John Glenn High School. I called her and she told me that a body of a girl was found and the girl was a classmate of hers. She told me that it was Kristen Scarabelli. Right after work, we went to the scene, Cedar Road, that was blocked off by police. We left there and as we were driving, I told Jennifer Brown that this was so weird because Anton and I were just around there like two nights before. I recall that Sunday in May was Mother's Day and Anton Shalinsky and I were walking around the neighborhood either the night after Mother's Day or the second night after Mother's Day at about 1 o'clock a.m. And we stopped somewhere near that corner of Greenville and Cedar and smoked a bowl, marijuana, on the curb where Kristen Scarabelli was found. At that time, I was smoking marijuana at least once a day, often shared with Anton. When we finished smoking, we left the area. We were just BSing and the conversation was not unusual. I eventually went home. And I don't recall where Anton stayed that night or when we parted ways. I was the one who picked out the spot to stop and smoke. I don't recall the next time I saw him, but it was within several days after the body was found. I recall that Anton had gone to Kristen Scarabelli's funeral, as did a lot of people, and that Anton mentioned he thought someone was acting inappropriately at the funeral, and he thought that person may have done it. Sometime in mid-1997, after Arbor Day, 1997, the day I started taking acid, I was with Anton. He was doing acid pretty steadily. He was in a bad way. And at one point, he said he wasn't sure, but he thought he may have done it. He wasn't sure, but something was sticking in his head. I thought I may be responsible for putting that idea in his head because sometime after the murder, we were talking, actually joking around. And I told him that it was so weird because I said, we were right there about that time. Any one of us could have done it. I think I may have planted that thought in his head. At this point of his life, Anton had no place to stay and was staying where he could. He said prison was not a bad place, a place to sleep three meals a day. He suggested we turn him in and collect the reward that was being offered. Sometime in January 1999, I stopped to see Anton at his parents' house in Georgia. I was with my friend Donna. We only stopped there for about two hours and there was no conversation or mention about the Scarabelli case. From the first time Anton mentioned he thought he may have been involved in Kristen Scarabelli's death, no one took him seriously. It was chalked up to the weird way that Anton thought and looked at things. Just as there were times that he thought he did it, there were times he would say he thought he did not do it. I have read this statement of three pages and swear it is true and accurate to the best of my knowledge. It bears the signature of Justin Smith and is notarized by Robert C. Flood, the investigator for the district attorney's office. Although Anton told Suffolk detectives over the phone in 2000 that he had never discussed his involvement with anyone, and at the time of trial he only said, I don't remember, his friends were able to piece together the fact that he did speak about his involvement. He was most definitely in the area on the night of Kristen's murder and on drugs. During his cross-examination, Anton acknowledged that he had been high and intoxicated on Cedar Road on previous occasions. Additionally, he classified himself as an alcoholic and substance abuser in May of 1996. When asked if he experienced blackouts due to his excessive intoxication, he responded, I don't remember, sir. On March 31st, 2000, when speaking to the police in Georgia, Anton relayed to them that he should be viewed as the prime suspect in this case. Although he did not agree to remembering that comment, he did agree that that was the statement he made on the video. When asked why he would have said that, he stated to Stephen's lawyer, Sir, I was extremely depressed. I was definitely thinking irrationally, and I really cannot come up with a reasonable explanation for an irrational behavior. 
Anton told Sergeant Adams and the Suffolk County detectives that he suffered from blackouts and violent rages. When asked on the phone by Suffolk County detectives why he thought he was involved, Anton stated it was a rage thing during a blackout. When asked during the trial, he did not remember making those statements. On the audio recording, Anton was heard telling the Suffolk detectives, Sergeant Doyle, Detective Mercer, and Detective Legaza that he was unable to recall what happened because there was a big cloud and that he did not come forward sooner out of fear, but that he was telling them then because it had just become intolerable that he couldn't put it together. Anton told the prosecutor during his testimony that he was not aware of where Kristen lived, but in his recording, he told the detectives that she lived on Cedar and that he had that information because he had walked around quite frequently and it was in the papers. He knew that her body was found on Markwood and Cedar. Anton testified that he did not remember any of this, but the information was undisputed in the recordings. Additionally, even though Anton told detectives he did not know Kristen, he testified that he went to her wake. When asked why he would go to the wake for a person he did not know, he replied that most of his friends knew her and were very upset. Anton stated that he did not remember being asked over the phone, did you do anything with the body after you strangled her, and telling the detectives no. He also testified at the time of trial he was not aware of whether or not he had anything to do with the crime. The jury, despite all of Anton's responses of I don't know and I don't remember, were able to watch his interview and listen to his conversation with the Suffolk County detectives. When Anton and the detectives took the stand, the jurors already had the truth, but that did not stop Anton from answering evasively during his cross-examination. Anton either said, I don't know, or I don't remember, or he gave convoluted answers to the jury during his cross-examination. Stephen's lawyer asked, did you tell them the truth about your possible involvement in this murder? Anton responded, at the time, I'd say no. So Stephen's lawyer asked, so you lied to them? Anton responded, no. At that time, I was very confused. I was thinking very strange thoughts, suffering from delusions. I'm not suffering from them at the moment. No, I wouldn't say it was a lie, but it's not the truth. So Stephen's lawyer asks, were you treated for delusions after March 31st of 2000? To which he responded, no, sir. So his lawyer asks, so there's some miracle cure that's come upon you between March 31st, 2000 and when this taped interview took place and today. Is that what you're telling us? And Anton responds, I've healed, sir. He says, you've healed. You continue to drink to excess, correct? Yes. You're an active and chronic alcoholic, correct? Yes. And you're drinking anything you can get your hands on. And you're saying you've healed? From delusions. Yes, sir. Stephen's lawyer asks, Mr. Shalinsky, is it true that as you sit here today, you don't know what involvement, if any, you had in the death of Kristen Scarabelli? To which he responded, yes, sir. Much like Anton did not recollect how much, if any, involvement he had in the murder, neither did the investigative detective because they did nothing to actually investigate Anton as a suspect. Their reasoning is hypocritical and contradictory to everything they implied made Stephen a suspect. Sergeant Doyle, Detective Mercer, and Detective Legaza all learned about Anton Shalinsky on the day he walked into the Georgia police station in 2000. A call was received that someone had information. The three detectives went into a room and began the conversation on speakerphone. After speaking with Anton for 15 minutes, Detective Mercer testified that they did not consider him a suspect at all. When asked why Anton was not deemed a suspect, Detectives Mercer and Doyle said they dismissed him as a nut. Additionally, Detective Mercer testified 
that Mr. Shalinsky on the phone interview and in the videotape knew nothing about this crime other than what he may have read in the paper. He didn't even know where the exact spot was where the body had been found. He couldn't give us any viable information whatsoever about this investigation. I felt that he was a person who had some mental illness and was looking for attention or looking for some help. Because the detectives self-diagnosed Anton in their 15-minute phone conversation, they ceased investigating him. The detectives testified that they did not even take notes during their phone conversation, and this was at a time when they were not aware the call was being recorded. How were they planning to preserve that information? The detectives did not speak to any of Anton's family or friends at the time of the phone conversation, and they did not interview anyone who was mentioned on the videotaped interview. The information presented by Anton's friends and presented in trial was not obtained until the trial had already begun. The detectives had three years to look into Anton, but they did not do that. In fact, they buried any record they had of him, especially because his DNA was not on the button. Additionally, when the Suffolk County detectives were asked by the police in Georgia if they had any physical evidence, Sergeant Doyle responded, some shed hairs. They did not even mention the button. Detectives did not test Anton's hair sample to the unidentified hairs collected during the investigation. Both Detective Mercer and Sergeant Doyle testified that they received a DNA exemplar and the video interview between Anton Shalinsky and the Georgia police on April 5th of 2000. Detective Mercer, upon receiving the package, sent the exemplar to the lab and filled out a lab request. However, in regards to the videotape, he generated no paperwork for it. The video was watched, to which the detectives testified did not change their opinion, and then the video was placed in a folder, unlabeled. Detective Mercer testified that because nobody labeled the folder containing the videotaped confession, there was no record of it. The detectives testified that they did not tell anyone in the district attorney's office about the videotape. Nobody mentioned it again until the exemplar from Anton Shalinsky came up during the trial. When the detectives were asked about their role in this, Detective Mercer categorized his actions as an honest mistake, while Sergeant Doyle classified it as a very regrettable mistake. The police misconduct overall in regards to Anton, coupled with Detective Legeza's seemingly perjurious testimony and the judge's continued denial of requests, emphasized the narrow-mindedness possessed throughout the entire investigation and trial. Stephen was their suspect, and it did not matter what anyone else said or did. He remained their fixation. Interestingly, the detectives testified to their diagnosis of Anton as a nut with a potential mental illness, so they concluded that he must not have anything to do with the crime. Although Detective Mercer testified that another reason for the dismissal was because of Anton's lack of information regarding the crime, the detectives would soon find out that the same lack of information applied to Stephen. The police thought that Anton may have had a mental illness, so they took nothing that he said seriously. They didn't even investigate him. Stephen was diagnosed more than once with a professional and expert crafted analysis, but instead, they used everything he said against him. The detective said that Anton was ruled out because he did not have any information about the crime. Everything he said was information he could have gotten from a newspaper. But Stephen didn't give any new information either. Everything Stephen said was also information that he could have gotten from the newspaper. Stephen didn't confess, but Anton did, more than once. Sometimes I read this information and I think, this is all a bad dream. But it's not. I'm reminded of that when I can't just call my uncle on the phone or drive over and visit him on a whim. It is frustrating to have all this information and not have the power to do anything. It is also frustrating that the detectives did such a poor job and that they were so untouchable that they could just chalk their actions up to mistakes. There were a lot of mistakes made in this case. Tune in next week to hear about what I believe to be the biggest mistake, a mistake that others have lobbied against for years. Tune in next week to hear about Stephen's six hours at police headquarters for his interrogation. Until next time, keep fighting for the innocent.